Hi, this is Roy Shoman, and welcome to Jesus the Promised Messiah of Judaism, the show on Radio Maria that celebrates the Jewish roots of the Catholic Church, or seen the other way around that celebrates the fulfillment, the complete realization of all of the promise of Judaism in the Catholic Church and her sacraments. Now, many of the promises in Judaism are reflected, of course, in the Old Testament, both in the beginning of the Old Testament, the first five books, uh, Genesis through uh, Deuteronomy, if I'm not mistaken, um, which is known as the Torah in Judaism, and also what's known as the wisdom literature, like the Psalms and the prophets, like Isaiah and so forth, which together, the Torah, the wisdom literature, and the Psalms uh, in Judaism is referred to as the Tanakh. Now, we have a very special guest today, so I'm going to babble as little as possible to leave as much room for him, um, I, and I'll even let him introduce himself. Uh, his name is Phil, and he is a passionate evangelist about the Jewish roots of Christianity and the many ways that uh, Christianity, and specifically the Catholic faith, is prefigured, is kind of predicted, is foreshadowed in the Old Testament, both in the prophets um, and also in, for instance, in, in the Torah. And I'm making that distinction because I think that most of us as Catholics are aware of the pictures of Jesus that appear, for instance, in Isaiah as a suffering servant. But there are many, many, many ways in which the coming truth of Catholicism is already foreshadowed in the Old Testament. So with that um, non-introduction introduction, are you there, Phil? Yes, I am. So why don't you just take it away? Oh, great. Well, thanks, Roy. It's an honor to be here. And uh, my name is Phil Giuliotti, and I live in Cleveland, Ohio. And... Um, I didn't meet Roy very long ago, <laughs> so we, I, I got to um, to come on the show because, you know, he described me as a passionate uh, person about Jewish roots of the faith, and I guess that, I've never heard it said that way, but I guess that's really true because um, I probably should start at the beginning because my um, my parents came to this country from Italy. I was actually the first one in my family born here. And so, of course, I had a Catholic childhood, and we went to, um, I had the sacraments, we went to Mass. Well, not 100% of the Sundays, but probably 95% of the Sundays. And um, when I was growing up, it was, you know, like many children and teenagers, wasn't a big part of my life, and wasn't an important part of my life. And I was geared to, you know, continuing my education, and I was geared to going on to grad school and professional school and having a career. And um, I got married at a relatively young age to um, a, a very passionate Catholic woman, young woman of uh, Polish descent. And as you know, Poles are very passionate about their Catholicism. <laughs> and so we... Um, Needless to say, I went to mass most Sundays. <laughs> not always, not always out of choice, but um, always with you know some pressure applied. <laughs> but I went, and you know we made sure that the kids went. I have two children who are now are grown. You can't see me, but I'm old. My my children are grown, and I have four grandchildren. And when my children were growing up, I basically told them, "You have to go to church today." because I don't want to hear about it from your mother. When you're 18, you don't have to go anymore. You can decide whether you want to go or not. And so, of course, when they turned 18, they didn't go anymore. Because after all, they listened to me rather than her. Um, my daughter, however, is going back, is back in the church and is going um, regularly on Sundays. Um, my son, not so much, but <laughs> that's... We're just waiting for the Holy Spirit to move on him like he moved on me because I have to start by saying how I got into this. And I was um, – I had a job where I worked 60 to 70 hours a week, and I was always 
running around and I was always driving from one place to another and uh, always leaving really early and coming home really late. And um, one day when I was driving over one of the highways here, um, I was flipping through radio stations because in those days, and I was just shy of being 44 years old at the time, just to kind of put a perspective on it. And one morning I accidentally came across one of these um, Christian radio stations. And I heard this man who was preaching and, you know, he had kind of a little bit of a Southern drawl and, and I love Southern draws, by the way. I'm very connected to New Orleans, as I'll get to later. And so one morning I'm driving over. I come across this preacher. I change the channel. And I heard something in my head, which later, of course, I realized with the Holy Spirit, who said, put him back and listen to what he's saying. And I put him back and listened for a while. But he might as well have been speaking Chinese because he was doing a teaching from the Old Testament, and I had no clue what he was talking about. And then, to make a long story short, the next day I put him on purposely, and he was talking about the temple in Jerusalem, and he got to talking about the sacrifices that were made. And as you probably know, um, all the sacrifices involved blood, because the Bible tells us without the shedding of blood, there's no forgiveness of sin. And it also tells us that when you sin, you forfeit your life, not just your spiritual life. We also forfeit our physical life, and life is in the blood. So in the Old Testament system, you took the unblemished lamb to the temple, you laid your hands on the animal, and the priest killed the animal, sprinkled the blood, and your sin was atoned for. So I hadn't heard any of this, so I was clutching my steering wheel, listening to this with everything in my brain. And then this man asked the relevant question that changed my life. And the question was, what did that lamb have to do with the fact that you sinned? And I said, nothing. And he said, nothing. A half hour ago, this was a cute little lamb who was in the pasture eating grass and just being a sheep, and now it's dead because I sinned. And what hit me in the head was, this is Jesus. And I was totally overwhelmed by this. And all my life I had heard Jesus called the Lamb of God. I had no idea why they called him that, other than I thought it meant that he was nice, like a little lamb. And, you know, since Jesus was nice, they called him the Lamb. Lamb of God. Well, then I realized why they called him the Lamb of God. And I was stunned and I was sobered up. And unlike people who have conversion experiences when they're, you know, kind of down and out and things are going bad, I had the most amazing, great life and I had a great, great family and we went on great vacations and I loved my job and I was happy as could be and I didn't think anything else was needed to make me happy. But then when this, when I realized this and realized that the lamb was Jesus and that he had to die on the cross by shedding blood in order for sin to be atoned for, that radically changed my whole life. And then I had to get a Bible <laughs> and, you know, had some Bibles at my house, but I can't say I ever opened one. So I opened one. And as you mentioned the, in the Torah, the first five books, which is also called, also called the books of Moses and the Pentateuch from the Greek for the five scrolls, I started to read, and I must say I didn't really understand everything I was reading. And I was trying to write down notes. and So my wife got me a sixth-grade catechism book, which at the time, this would have been 1995, at the time... The, this sixth grade curriculum was the Old Testament. So the sixth grade book, I could understand. <laughs> so I started reading and I started making notes. So I still have that sixth grade book here. So I always look at it lovingly whenever I come across it in my messy study room. <laughs> but 
I stayed in the Torah for a long, long time, making notes, reading, making notes, reading more complicated commentaries. And I couldn't figure out why I was so into this. But as I started going through it, I started to see things that prefigured Jesus. I started to see things that prefigured his sacrifice on the cross. And I started to pre see things that prefigured, like the writer to the Hebrews tells us, you know, he's the eternal high priest. He goes through the veil, which is the heavens. He goes to the throne of God with his blood. You know, he's the eternal mediator. You know, Paul tells Timothy there's no mediator between God and man. There's only one mediator, the man Christ Jesus. And I started to understand these things by focusing on what was happening in the Torah and then realizing that God had given the people this covenant of law, which consisted of 613 laws, not just the Ten Commandments, as most people think, 613 laws. And he basically tells the people, I'm paraphrasing, but if you follow all these laws, you'll be righteous. And you'll be my people, and I'll be your God. And there's only 613, and all the people always say, we'll do whatever the Lord says. And then, of course, that only lasts about a page. And then when you turn the page, there's some kind of a, re a rebellion. So I was fascinated through the Torah, starting in Genesis 3.15, which, you know, Genesis chapter 3 is the fall. And, 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 and I have to say that even before that, in chapters one and two, uh, which are the creation accounts, two accounts, it struck me that when God created, he spoke the creation into existence. His word speaks the creation. Let there be light. Let there be. Let this happen. Let that happen. Let this come forth. And he talks to the sky and he talks to the earth and he talks to the sea. When he makes Adam, he talks to himself. He says, let us make man in our own image. And so this is another thing that really hit me. I knew, you know, I learned in catechism, we were made in God's own image. And when I read that and thought about the fact that he said, let us make man in our own image, that idea of having the image of God, the Imago Dei, inside of us took on such a new significance. And then in chapter three, man falls, Adam and Eve fall. And in uh, verse 15, three, uh, Genesis 3.15, God actually proclaims the gospel for the first time. And this was called the proto-gospel, the proto-evangelion in Greek. Um, and you may know it in different terms, but he basically tells Adam and Eve, he tells Eve and the serpent, that things are really messed up now, and he's going to have to fix the problem. <laughs> he's going to put enmity between the serpent and the woman, between the serpent's offspring and the woman's offspring. And, you know, many translations say the seed of the woman. And this is another thing that struck me, because in ancient thought and ancient literature, you know, kind of the poetic meaning of the reproductive act, it's the man that has the seed, not the woman. And so I thought, wow, here's Genesis 3.15, right after Adam and Eve fall, God is showing us that a redeemer is coming who does not have a human father. It comes from the woman. It comes from Mary, eventually. It comes from a virgin, as Isaiah, of course, tells us, um, about the, the virgin conceives and bears a son, the virgin is with child. And you're going to call him Emmanuel, God with us. So um, the virgin birth and the Redeemer and the fact that Satan is going to have his head crushed are prefigured in Genesis 3.15 and, and on. So this really got me going <laughs> because then, of course, you have the patriarchs and you have Abraham, who responds to God's voice, get up and go. And as you know from your background, Roy, and many of you have 
studied at least some aspects of um, Hebrew scripture, God doesn't tell Adam or doesn't tell Abraham, or I should say Abram more properly at that point, uh, you know, I want you to think about what I just told you. And if you want to start packing up your stuff and if you want to go to the post office and leave a forwarding address and you want to shut off your utilities, you know, think about it maybe in another month or two. He says, no, he says, get up and go. And every, um, in fact, it was just a couple of weeks ago that was the reading in all the synagogues. It's called Lech Lecha, which means, which basically God says to Adam, get up and go to a land I'm going to show you. And Abraham obeys. And he follows. And from then through the whole scripture, the scriptures talk about Abraham believed and it was counted as righteousness. Abraham obeyed and it was counted as righteousness. And so the patriarchs, and then Adam gives rise, I'm sorry, Abram gives rise. I was talking about Adam this morning, and that's why I'm fixated on him. <laughs> but Abram gives rise to the people. He becomes Abraham, the father of nations. He gives rise to the chosen people. And the chosen people, I don't know if you've thought about it this way before, but they really have two purposes that are very important. They have many purposes, but the two very important purposes is God tells them they should be a light to the nations. Now, when the Bible talks about nations, it's talking about Gentiles. They should be a light to the Gentiles. They were the only people that had the covenant. They were the only people that knew the true God. My ancestors and probably most of the listeners, not you, Roy, <laughs> but most of the listeners, you know, our ancestors were worshiping the sun and the moon and the rocks and you know they were running around being card carrying pagans but God told the Hebrews there to be the light a light to the nations because they were the only ones who knew the true God so that was a prefigurement of what was going to happen when Jesus comes what was going to happen when the Jewish Messiah came and the second thing is the chosen people give rise to the humanity of Jesus he is physically, you know, God, Jesus has humanity 100%. And as you know, he's 100% God, he's 100% man. And he had a real human body with real human heredity, with real human function. He got tired, he got hungry, and had to go to sleep. I mean, all the things that humans do, except no sin, he comes from a progression of Jewish ancestry, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to Judah, down to King David, and then down to the Virgin Mary, who is of the house of David, as is St. Joseph. So the lineage of David, and I, I'm sure Royce probably pointed, I've probably pointed this out to you many times, one of the great messianic titles in Judaism is son of David. The Messiah is the son of David. And if you ask any Jewish person, who's the Messiah going to be? They'll say he's the son of David. In fact, they even said that in the, you know, when, when they tried to trap Jesus. But he physically, Jesus is physically related to King David because Mary is physically related to King David. And this royal line goes down to him. And so the chosen people, the Hebrews, the Israelites, produced the physical Messiah. They produced the humanity of Jesus, who then becomes the light to the nations, the light to the Gentiles. And I always like to go back to what we know, and, and I'm sure you all know, because we have it as a, a mystery, in the rosary, the presentation of Jesus in the temple. You know, one of God's laws was that when you had your first baby, if it was a boy at day 40, you had to take him to the temple to be presented to the Lord. If it was a girl, you went on day 66. 
I don't know why there was a difference. I'm going to ask when I go to heaven, but um, that probably won't come up. But um, Joseph and Mary being observant Jews, they would have never crossed their mind to not have Jesus circumcised in name on day eight and not to go to the temple for the presentation on day 40. But you remember Simeon says, this baby is the glory of Israel and the light to the Gentiles. So the whole command of you're going to be light to the Gentiles comes all the way down to Simeon, who then says that about this little 40-day-old boy that he's holding. So I think that's really awesome. And so as, as you go through the Torah from, through the, from the patriarchs, you have the story, of, there's so many, but I'm going to have to summarize. You have the story of Joseph, Jacob's son, who sold into slavery for pieces of silver, and he's betrayed by his brethren, just like Jesus, betrayed by his brethren, sold for pieces of silver, becomes a servant, becomes a governor. He's mistreated by everyone, but he forgives them and tells his brothers, what you meant for evil, God meant for good, which flashed me immediately forward to the cross. When you think about the cross, what those people who plotted against Jesus meant for evil was actually meant for good because that was the the act of salvation that the writer to the Hebrews says, you know, the sacrifice was once for all. And so Joseph becomes a type. And then they're delivered from Egypt 400 years later. And at the Passover, and every Passover season, I do Messianic Seder um, in people's houses and at churches. And we have a really big one at our parish church here. And you all know about the Passover, unleavened bread, cups of wine. So you have bread and wine. You have blood. You put the blood of the lamb on your door. And if you have the blood, and if the Israelites had the blood, they avoided the curse. They didn't have the blood. They were subject to the curse. And it's the same with our sin. If we're under the blood of Jesus, the Messiah, sin doesn't have power over us. We're not slaves to sin anymore. So the lamb prefigured, and then God sovereignly delivered the people from Egypt. They didn't do it. He didn't tell them to start making weapons. He didn't tell them to start killing Egyptians. He didn't tell them to start a guerrilla war. He didn't tell them to start doing terrorism. He said, do what I tell you to do and you'll be freed. And what he told them to do was put the blood of a lamb on their house and have unleavened bread. And then the wine was, was, was added later. But very powerful prefigurements of the lamb and the bread. And so they get delivered from Egypt sovereignly they get delivered from a physical slavery to the Egyptians. We, in the church, get delivered from a slavery to sin if we follow him. We get delivered from being bound to sin, to being slaves to sin. And then we go into the wilderness toward the promised land. Amen. Let me, uh, interrupt. Let, let me interrupt for some, um, some housekeeping here. Which is uh, this is a, this is a live call-in show. I neglected to say that at the beginning, mea culpa. Uh, but the number here is is eight six six three 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 six two seven nine or eight six six three 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 Mary M A R Y. And uh, usually I have to field all the difficult questions, but today we have somebody else who can punt all the questions to. So. So if you have any that are particularly difficult to answer, please call in today with them <laughs> so that <laughs> so that I can make it Phil's problem. Um, no, I'm just an amateur. <laughs> uh, well, you've been doing this. I'm actually interrupting you, of course, but 
Um, you, you, I don't know if it's modesty or, or what, but uh, Phil can fill in the blanks, but he spent years going, for instance, to the, excuse me for the expression, garbage dump people of Mexico City, the poorest of the poor, yes. and, uh, and preaching this and, and illumining the Catholic faith in the light of the Old Testament. Uh, he may be new to Radio Maria, but he's not new to um, his shtick, if that's a good Italian word. <laughs> and um, <laughs> so so uh, don't let that like false modesty make your questions too simple. <laughs> but I'll also give him a, a break. Him, I'll, I'll bring out something else, I guess, which is um, Radio Maria is... It's, I mean, look, it's a, it's a station for everybody because everybody needs God and we want to get everybody closer to God from wherever they are to the next step closer. But it does have a, um, a Catholic identity, not exclusively Catholic identity. So um, I can't help, maybe I'm just prodding Phil, but um, yes, you have, the, you have the blood of the Lamb, you have the blood of the Lamb on the cross. So you have the blood of the cross saving the Jews in Egypt. But let's not forget about John 6 either, right? I mean, you have the Eucharist, you have the blood in the chalice, you have the the bread from heaven, the manna, which becomes the Eucharist. So although some of what you've been saying is applicable within the general Christian context, within the Catholic context, I would argue it's even more specific and more powerful. Yes. I, I haven't gotten to the manna yet. Sorry. Yes, Sorry. Getting there. But this is why I mentioned the bread, you know, the unleavened bread that, that was used at the Passover. The Last Supper, of course, was Jesus's last Passover Seder on earth. It was a Passover Seder. And this was, you know, people, this, this was literally the first mass in the sense of it had the Hebrew form of the Seder. And most of those, and those people who were with him, we don't know exactly how many people were there. The apostles were there for sure. There were probably other people. But all the people that were, that were there had been to many, many Passover Seders. Many. But all of a sudden there was a change because all of a sudden he took, takes the bread, which we can get into that maybe sometime when it comes closer to Passover, or I'm sure you do that. He takes a certain type of bread that comes from what's called the afikoma, and that's what you, which is eaten later. And he that's when he consecrates the bread and breaks it and passes it around and says, this is my body. And then in a traditional Seder, there's four cups of wine. The third cup is what he used to consecrate the wine into his blood and he said this is the chalice of my blood this is the new and eternal covenant and so there was a change of covenants there at the last supper at that last seder where jesus uses the form of the passover to institute the new covenant the old covenant um, co the old covenant was also sealed in blood but it was the blood of animals the new covenant is sealed in the blood of Jesus. And so that the Last Supper becomes the first mass, becomes the consecration of the bread and wine. And he physically says, I mean, he literally says, this is my body and this is my blood. And you can get into many discussions with your Protestant friends and Protestant brothers and sisters about that. But for people who take the Bible literally, literally, I would can, I would maintain that you have to take the fact that Jesus says, this is my body and this is my blood, literally. And so that was built on the Passover. Um, in the wilderness, though, you know, Roy mentioned the manna. The manna came every day, except Saturday. And I think we lost, I know we lost, Phil. So um, if you're within the sound of my voice, Phil, call or, or Skype me 
And when your call comes in, I will simply uh, try to merge you onto the um, ongoing program. So uh, I don't know if I can continue from where where we had our little technical glitch, but I'll try. So so um, uh, I, I'll start in another little place because because I'm a little bit uh, caught on my heels here. Uh, Phil mentioned how the Jews were freed from slavery in Egypt and uh, by the blood on the doorpost, the blood of the Lamb, and how we're freed from the slavery of sin by the blood of the Lamb. And it actually gets even neater than that, because first of all, we're freed from sin by the blood on the cross, at the cross of Jesus, and if you think of the houses in Egypt, the only wooden cross, so to speak, on the house would have been where the headpiece of the doorway crossed the vertical uh, beams of the doorway. The, the lintel crossing the uprights of the doorway would have been wood, and the rest of the house would have been adobe or clay. And so, in fact, the blood of the lamb... Oh, I think I have Phil back. So... Um, uh, are you there, Phil? Phil? Yes. Okay. Yes, now I have to finish my shtick for a minute because um, I was trying to to uh, uh, fill the air until you came back. So I'm just gonna. Um, no, I, I have all. I have the rest of my life on Radio Maria to do that. <laughs> I I just I was just trying to uh, backfill. So I just filled the little detail that the blood of the lamb on the doorpost of the house would have been essentially the blood on the cross because the doorpost yes. of the house yes. would have been two crossed yes. pieces of wood. Right, so exactly. I'll, I'll just give it back to you at this point. Well, I talked for a long time before I realized you were gone. I talked about, I don't know if you got the part about the manna and Jesus referring to it. Uh, why don't you, no, why don't you just you know, rewind the, to the, the, the beginning of the Jesus manna? Says, Jesus says your, your ancestors ate manna in the desert and they died. But if you eat this bread, referring to himself, referring to the Eucharist, you will not die. You will live forever. So he is the fulfillment of the manna. The manna provided all their, their nutritional needs. You know, they got tired of manna pretty commonly and they rebelled. But the manna... The amount they ate per day filled all their spiritual needs. I'm, I'm sorry, physical needs. But in the bread of the Eucharist, we have all our spiritual needs fulfilled. And so it's the fulfillment of the manna. It's the end point of the manna. Like he is the end point of the blood of the lamb. And yes, I, maybe I didn't explain it well, but he's the lamb of God because he's the sacrifice. The blood on the door and the blood was always applied in a kind of a cross shape. In fact, the scripture doesn't say this, but traditionally they, I think the, I don't think the scripture says it, but I don't have it in front of me now. The lamb was roasted on a cross-shaped spit. One went lengthwise through the lamb and one went across the shoulders. So even the spit was shaped like a cross. And it all had to be consumed. You couldn't leave any of it behind. And so... These things are very strong prefigurements of the blood of the cross, the blood atonement, the blood delivering them from slavery, the blood delivering them from the curse. And the manna is another type, another prefigurement of the bread of the Eucharist. And he consecrated... Let me, let, I'm going to interrupt. Yeah. I just want to add something, because I think it's incredibly wonderful, which is... From Jewish theology, it's from these are discussions you know, basically from the Talmud, and there are a bunch of them. Uh, Jewish theology has always taught that when the Messiah comes, he has to come on Passover mm -hmm. because Moses and the freeing of the Jews from slavery in Egypt was a prefigurement of when the Messiah comes. Moses was a prefigurement of the Messiah, and since Moses essentially came on Passover, the Messiah will come on Passover. Mm -hmm. But even neater than that, and what really made me jump in, is that the rabbis in the Talmud ask, um, 
when they ask two things, well, they ask more than two things, they never stop asking things. But one thing they ask is, when, when the Messiah comes, will all of the sacrifices cease? Will the sacrifices mm -hmm. cease? And the answer is, I'm sure you know this, Phil, I'm just, I'm just mm -hmm. jumping in. Because uh, I get tired of not hearing my own voice, I guess. Um, <laughs> they, uh, the answer is, when the Messiah comes, all of the sacrifices will cease except for one. Because in the Old Testament, there are all kinds of sacrifices. There are sin offerings, there are wave offerings, yes. there are harvest offerings, and so yes. forth. The, the rabbis in the Talmud say all of the offerings will cease except for one, the Thanksgiving sacrifice. And what's mm -hmm. Eucharist mean? It's just Greek for Thanksgiving. Yes. They also ask in the Talmud, um, they, I, they don't ask, they say that as the first uh, Redeemer, Moses, caused manna to descend from the heavens, the second Redeemer, the Messiah, will cause manna to descend once again from the heavens. Oh, wow. And that, again, is oh, the wow. Eucharist. Yes. That's awesome. That's awesome. And said, I'm the living bread said, come down from heaven. <laughs> yeah. And, yeah, and, and, exactly. You were saying that. And he was born And he was born in a place that means house of bread. You know, Bethlehem means house of bread. So there's a lot of references of bread when it comes to Jesus. And for good reason. <laughs> Yeah, that's an excellent point. Yeah, that's an excellent point. The sacrifices, um, sacrifices um, you know, the the the, the, the Old Testament the old and ritualistic sacrifices, of course, sacrifices were no longer needed. Like no the needed. The, right, the writer to the Hebrews the says, you know, the blood of bulls and goats can't take away sin. It's a symbol. I'm going to jump. I'm going to jump in again with yeah. something from the Talmud. Yeah. Not only were they no longer needed, but they were no longer effective. Um, yes. Just like yeah. th that image in Mel Gibson's Passion of the Christ, which is also in Scripture of the of the veil of the temple being yes. rent in two, yes. and we know yes. that they were no longer effective from the Talmud itself, mm -hmm. because the Talmud recounts that the miracle of the scarlet thread ceased yes. occurring. Now, what was the miracle of the scarlet thread? Every, every Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the year, the only day of the year when the high priest would enter the Holy of Holies to offer sacrifice for the remission of sins of the entire Jewish nation, before he entered it, a scarlet cord would be hung around the doorway. Mm -hmm. And if when he offered the sacrifice, if it was accepted by God for the remission of sins of the Jewish nation, that cord would miraculously turn white as a sign that the sins had been remitted. And the Jewish nation gathered outside the door with their eyes fixed on the, on the red cord would start, um, you know, would jubilantly rejoice because their sins had been remitting, yes. remitted. The Talmud recounts that this miracle occurred almost every year until one point in time when it ceased occurring and never occurred again. Mm -hmm. When was that? The Talmud says about 40 years before the destruction of the temple yes. or just when Jesus was crucified. Yes. And I think even uh, Josephus makes mention of that. The uh, scarlet thread no longer turned white. And people must have started, I always like to think that people must have started worrying a little bit as to what was going on. Do you, do you know what the anti-missionary rabbis, what their explanation of that is? If, if a Jewish convert like me brings it up, did you ever hear the uh, anti-missionary response? Not to that, no. It's, it's great, because no one said Jews aren't clever. The official response is, yes, that's because the Jews committed a terrible, terrible sin for which they couldn't be forgiven. What was that sin? So many of them follow this false Messiah, Jesus. Oh, no, I haven't heard that one. <laughs> I mostly hear about Isaiah 53. <laughs> And, and and I should mention I don't we, I don't know how much time we have left probably not much but um, a good ten minutes oh, okay so you're all familiar with Isaiah the prophet you know he is um, as I like to point out major prophet has his own scroll he has sixty six chapters although he didn't have chapters in his time but you, you know the the book of Isaiah has such a wealth of information about salvation and about the Messiah himself in it, that it's sometimes called the gospel according to Isaiah. 
because it talks about how there is sin occurring that requires judgment, that the virgin's going to bear a son. He's going to be Emmanuel. He's going to be the suffering servant. He's going to bring light to the people that dwell in darkness. And many, many, many references to the fact that Gentiles are going to be called into the kingdom, which was radical to the people. In fact, St. Paul in um, Ephesians, I can't remember the chapter, if it's, I think it's either four or five, talks about the great mystery of the age is the Gentiles are included in the kingdom with the Jews. You know, we, well, this doesn't apply to Roy, but we as Gentile Catholics, anyone who's a Gentile Christian thinks to themselves, well, of course Gentiles were included. And 99.9% of the church are Gentiles. But Paul says this was the great mystery of the age. The Gentiles are going to be included too. And, and what really struck me after studying Isaiah for a while, I thought about St. Paul going into these little towns, whether it was in, you know, through the Greek world, whether it was the Middle East, whether it was in Rome, he would go into a town where the Gentiles there had no clue who Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were, had no idea what was going on in the temple, nor did they care. But here's this Jewish evangelist who preaches to them. The Holy Spirit acts on them, and they come to faith in the Jewish Messiah. Really quite amazing. And this is the, this is the panorama of salvation. This is the, the excitement of the love of God that produces the plan of salvation. And all of this is basically in Isaiah. Yeah, I mean, to the point where, you know, many of the rabbis, as you know, thought there would be two messiahs, a suffering messiah and then a triumphant messiah. Well, they were kind of right, except it's one messiah in both positions. <laughs> well, it's also one messiah who comes twice. Yes, right. First to suffer, <laughs> right. because that, that was what the Talmud said. It was the first messiah would come to suffer and die to take away sin. And the second Messiah would come to usher in the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm, yes. I mean, to end life as we know it, you know, to the, the dead would resurrect and so forth. Yeah. So um, it, it maps pretty well into the first coming and second coming. They just didn't realize that it was the same guy who would come both times. <laughs> and so, you know, I, 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 I have to say, too, that... Um, I've had these interesting conversations with many, many, many Jews who are friends of mine, were colleagues of mine that I met in, you know, people I met in various places. And I'm, and I, and I must tell you that when you know sort of the highlights of the Torah and you know the highlights of the prophets and you know some of these things about Jewish history and culture, it's much easier to present Jesus to them than if you don't know these things, number one. So I've taken many Jewish people through blood atonement and, you know, provisions of the bread, the wine, the bread and the wine that you do with the Seder. And um, it, I I, I can't say that they come to faith in Jesus, you know, the first minute they hear that, (laughs) but, but they, they stop and think about it. And, um, it's the, the other thing that goes along with that. And people who know me are gonna, are kind of tired of me saying this, but if you start studying the Bible in Matthew one, one, there's two problems with that. Number one is you miss two thirds of the scriptures. And number two is if you don't understand the law, as I briefly described, it's really hard to get the deep appreciation of who Jesus was, why he came, and what he did while he was here, and what a terrific, I don't even know what to call it, the terrific blessing of having unmerited favor, the grace that we get from him through the church, through the sacraments, through the scriptures, through everything becomes more, everything becomes fulfilled and you approach it with a deeper understanding than if you don't know anything about the Old Testament. Because let's face it, a lot of people say, eh, I don't like the Old Testament. There's all those names, there's all those battles, and 
God was really mean then. Now he's nice, but then he was really mean. But you say, no, 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 let me tell you. And um, it certainly changed my life. <laughs> I don't even know how else to how else to put it, but it's a whole panorama of salvation. Um, I think one of the things that makes it, um, you know, look, we're both in the same business, right? We basically have very similar shticks and we're both preaching yeah, um, a yeah. very similar line. And I think one of the things that's really good about making the connection between Judaism and the Catholic Church and the sacraments is that the danger is, I think you mentioned this at the beginning of the show, the danger is, you know, Christians think, the story began 2,000 years ago yeah. in, in Bethlehem with the birth yeah. of Jesus. And if they think that, then it's like, I don't want to say it's a story like other stories, but um, it's a more more powerfully convincing that the Catholic Church is, well, here, the way I look at it is, the Catholic Church is not a religion. It's a system for the salvation of mankind mm -hmm. that God came up with in the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve fell. Yes. It was his plan for undoing the fall. Yes. That plan had a preparation stage, which we know of as Judaism, and a fulfillment phase, which we know of as the Catholic Church and the sacraments. So it is one, st one economy of salvation, one plan for salvation from the Garden of Eden yes. until the second coming. Yes, I agree. That's a great way to put it. In fact, I used to say there was just a continuum of salvation. The salvation story was a continuum. Then one day when I was praying about it, the Lord showed me, well, it's not just a line. It's a whole panorama of things. <laughs> and it, it's that has really stuck with me because I think people in the church don't always appreciate that. And they they really haven't had that. I don't want to say not taught to them, but they haven't been taught that in a way that makes them really stand in awe of what God did over the period of time from the Garden of Eden until whenever it's going to be that everything is all wrapped up. I I'm voting for early January, but anyway. Oh, yeah. Hey, I, every time I do a talk somewhere and all the Bible studies I do, I say, oh, I hope it becomes this afternoon. I hope it becomes tonight. But um, yeah, so uh, that's just a run through. I don't, I, I, I don't e even know what else to say. There, you know, I put together a thirty-three part study of the Torah for Christians who. Oh, don't. that's what you can do. Look, we have a couple of minutes left. Um, I know you're not Jewish, but why don't you advertise yourself? <laughs> Everybody thinks I'm Jewish. You can't see me, but I look very Jewish. When I when I go to Israel, people come up to me and start speaking Hebrew, um, and I shake my head and. When I go to Greece, people come up to me and start speaking Greek, and I say, no, 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 no. I guess I look like pretty much everything, but I definitely look Jewish, and good friends of mine who are Jewish believers in Jesus always say to me, why do you deny that you're Jewish? Well, I, you're, we only have about two minutes uh, left, so do yeah, you have a website? Do you have, have anything websites. like that? Uh, one is giftofgraceministries.org, giftofgraceministries.org. Uh, um, all my radio shows are there going back to 2009. Um, most of my Torah study is there, although I'm still working on, the, on putting it on the website. And there's a lot of other Bible teachings. And then there's one that's www.oneinmessiah.website, which are teachings I do on, on Friday night connecting Old Testament, New Testament passages. And then I have a podcast. Now, One in Messiah... One in Messiah, that's the word O-N-E, it's the number one. No, What's... no, it's O-N-E, O-N-E in Messiah dot website. Then I have podcasts, there's about 600 and some podcasts. Um, if you search for Dr. Phil slash Gift of Grace, Dr. Phil slash Gift of Grace, then I have a YouTube channel. <laughs> I just put last night's teaching on the YouTube which is One in Messiah, Gift of Grace Ministries. I know that's a mouthful. One in Messiah, Gift of Grace Ministries. If you like YouTubes and podcasts and websites, there's all that stuff. That's great. Well, I, I, I'm going to have to wrap up now. It's okay. been a delight having you on both for um, what you've been 
preaching and also for our interaction, actually, which was a lot of fun. Yes. And um, in case you're wondering what's going on, you are, in fact, listening to Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism on Radio Maria. (laughs) And um, we've had the great pleasure today of having a new friend of mine who looks and sounds Jewish, even though he isn't. uh, (laughs) Phil, uh, pronounce your last name again. Giuliani. Don't say the Giuliotti. second <laughs> Okay, Giuliotti, um, who has a uh, ministry. As soon as I found out about him, I wanted to have him on because, because his ministry is also trying to um, basically evangelize Catholics and Christians into being more passionate Christians by shedding light on the continuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament and the continuity between Judaism and Christianity. And um, I, 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 as a Jew, like to do that, first of all, of course, because it brings Catholics and Christians um, closer to God, but also because it's much easier for Jews to enter the church if they realize they don't have to stop being Jewish. They don't mm-hmm. only not stop being Jewish, but actually <laughs> they're entering their own church. It's, it's, the goyim <laughs> who, it's the goyim who are the newcomers, the interlopers. And if they understand that, it's a lot easier. It lowers a lot of barriers. So that's, that's, you know, that's my particular Jewish chauvinistic reason for doing this. (laughs) And I thought that would be the main reason. But then when I started evangelizing, I realized it's very, very edifying for, um, for cradle Catholics also. And and Phil's doing the same thing. And to tell the truth, he's much more of a missionary than I am, because I'm sitting here in my comfortable study in front of a microphone. And he's, he took all of his vacations for years on the garbage dumps of Mexico City, you know, evangelizing the poorest of the poor. So, so I'm yes. just a kind of a Johnny come lately to this, but I'm very grateful for take, having Mon. If I can take four more, if I can take four more seconds, I want to say hello to everyone in Louisiana who's listening because I spent many weekends teaching at the Center of Jesus the Lord in New Orleans with uh, Father John Capucci and a great uh, community of charismatic Catholics there. So. Hello, Louisiana. Great. I <laughs> Hello. miss y'all. Yeah, the, I, this, the, the headquarters of this station was for a long time, Alexandria, uh-huh. uh, Louisiana. Mm-hmm. I, I'm not sure yeah. if it still is. It might still be. So anyway, but, you know, we're up against the clock, so it's time to say goodbye. Thank you for listening. Uh, as I said, you've been listening to Radio Maria, the uh, Jesus, the Promised Messiah of Judaism, with your host, me, Roy Showman. And I hope you join us again next week, same time, same place, for Jesus, the promised Messiah of Judaism. It's time to say goodbye for now. See you next week. Bye.